Welcome to this episode of the Plant Breeding Stories podcast, where I talk to leading lights in plant breeding, asking what they do, what makes them tick, and what fascinates them about the world of plants. I'm your host, Hannah Senior of PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We design and produce specialist pollination bags and tents used by plant breeders and seed producers all around the world. And through this, I've been privileged to get a unique perspective on how plant breeding globally affects our diets, farming systems, and the environment. I'm excited to share a little of this with you as we meet some of the amazing people who make plant breeding their life's work. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Pete Ionetta from the James Hutton Institute in Scotland. Normally, we talk to plant breeders, but Pete describes himself as an agroecologist, although, as you'll hear, his work does touch on plant breeding. He's an interesting guest because he brings a wide range of influences to his work and a perspective strongly influenced by systems thinking. We discuss how human behaviour, value chain capability and ecology feed into thinking about breeding for legumes and demand for these crops. I hope you enjoy it. Pete, did you have an interest in plants from an early age? How did you get into this? By accident. I I would say I had a a love of the outdoors before I had a love for plants, particularly a love of fishing. And from from that, looked at just how fish were produced, you know, what they did. I took a a broad interest in fish of all kinds. And that, I guess, set a seed for just considering things to do with protein and sustainable protein supply. And and it was uh, built upon at university. Uh, There were individuals there who were big into fish farming and sustainable fish farming uh, and i think um yeah you know and from that then i learned how much the plant system was becoming linked to aquaculture so that's kind of a part of history of, of how I, I came to where i am looking at that link of how plant systems drive the sustainable protein supply and what you've just described it highlights that you have had a non-linear path into research and and your current role so tell me a little bit about the diversity of things that you did before you came into agroecology research and plant biology research. Well, I guess I'm lucky I, in many ways, I ended up where I am because I think had I, I'm deaf in one ear and half deaf in the other, which not a lot of people know. And I could easily have ended up in the military, I think, before I ended up to where I am. I was in the Naval Reserve for a short time in the Territorial Army in the Medical Corps. But, you know, with that, with that our career route blocked off to me, I, um, yeah, developed in other areas. Obviously, went to study plant biology and ecology. I'm a bit of a people person, I guess. Tried to be a teacher and worked in residential social care uh, with, with kids in care um, before coming back you know, to do my PhD and, and, and keep going in you know, what I was doing at university. So certainly a, non, a nonlinear path. Um, with a big interest in in your sustainability and equality, you know, I'm not I'm not really hung up on any one scientific method, but I, I, I just the, the way I've evolved, I have a, a systems overview. Do you think that breadth of experience is one of the factors that's influenced you to have that systems overview, or has it influenced you in other ways? I, I think like ecology, life and how you move on in it is probably multifunctional in that there's a breadth of influences and then I think there's a confluence, uh, you know, factors that drive you down certain directions. But, you know, being brought up, but you know, you'll know by my name, I'm not, um, it's not a traditionally Scottish name. You know, I come from an Italian, Southern Italian uh, family. There's a reasonably strong food culture, you know, particularly from a mother's side. You know, if I ask my mother, Often, how how are you? She'll tell me what she's eaten, 
and that's that's not untypical uh, in other in other cultures around the world as well. So you know you're you're always thinking about food and and socialising around food. Now, when we spoke previously, you said something which kind of amused me. Um, You said, I went back to my first love, which was legumes. And there's not many people who would use that turn of phrase. Uh, So I'd like to turn the conversation to legumes for a few minutes. And in particular, the work you were involved in recently that made a splash in the press with the Arbiki distillery and the launch of a carbon neutral gin called Nadar made from peas. So could you tell me a little bit about that? So that process started 10 years ago. Uh, we were working on a project looking at air fractionated beans for, for aquaculture predominantly. And air fractionation is an interesting process in itself in that you take the beans, you take the skin off, you mill them or dry them, mill them, and then you put them in an air cyclone. The protein bodies being lighter go higher in that cycle. The starch bodies being heavier go lower. You then take off those different strata of that air cyclone you end up with a protein concentrate from the top and a starch concentrate from the bottom. And the protein concentrate works very, very well as a fish feed. Up to 70% of farmed salmon diets in Scotland are vegetable protein. But really the commercial success of it stalled because of a route for the starch. So feeding pigs and poultry with the starch didn't stack up. It wasn't competitive with other feed sources. So we were left wondering what we could do with that starch. And we originally then started working with Aberté through MSc students, Aberté University, to turn that starch into alcohol. And it worked very well. Terrific levels of... Uh, and then we started, well, why are we even air fractionating the beans? Then we decided to start distilling the whole bean. And that was more challenging because there's issues with the hulls and the inhibits the process of what we call saccharification, turning the starch into sugar that the yeast can then turn into alcohol. But we got around all these problems and, and actually we found that um, you get different qualities of alcohol um, and we've, we've trialled lentils and we've trialled peas and beans, but the peas made more sense for the Scottish climate, but also for the the challenges of the alcohol as well. Uh, but lentils equally make a nice spirit too. So that, that, that's, a, that's a, would you believe, a brief history of that process. Uh, and it's still ongoing. Uh, we're now looking at, at playing with the co-product from that process because, of course, the protein from that distilling process falls out in the waste material, which is called potale. What's interesting to me about making alcohol from legumes is that the UK isn't really known for its legume production, although as nitrogen-fixing plants, they can be very beneficial. Can you explain why that is? Crop systems are driven by nitrogen. If you want to optimise crop growth, nitrogen is the key chemical to drive crop growth. Of course, you need potassium and and phosphorus and there's other nutrients, including uh, mineral nutrients. But the big driver is nitrogen. Uh, So if you really want productive systems, you've got to get a decent amount of nitrogen into those systems. And therein lies a double-edged sword in that while you need nitrogen to drive productivity, too much of it, if its delivery is uncontrolled, leaches nitrogen into the system, whether it's pollution of waterways or whether it escapes as greenhouse gases. So, but you know, a well-managed, legume-supported system can be uh, nutrient-efficient, and that, and that nutrient efficiency is really, really important. And we don't grow that many legumes in the UK um, so how does it fit into the rotation? But in terms of these high-protein grains, no, they don't feature much at all. Probably if you look at the UK as a whole, it's more like 3% covered grain legumes. With my agroecology hat on, the level should be closer to 
15% of the rotation being green leg. And I would ideally like to see 25, to be honest, but to, to achieve that, you really need to have quite a range of different legume types and we just don't have that range available yet for certainly for Scotland. So with regard to the rotation, you know, well balanced crop rotation would see pulses in the system. You want to see them at least one in six to one in seven of the rotation. And uh, it's not just as simple as putting them in, they do need to still be well managed. Yeah, as well as having a crop that doesn't demand nitrogen, the residues that are left in the field can offset nitrogen requirement for later crops if those residues are trapped properly. But if they're not trapped and managed properly, they will mineralise quite quickly and be lost to your next crop. So it's not just about legumes, of course, it's about the behaviour that goes with growing those legumes, that they're, they're managed, they're grown well. But all too often, legumes are treated as a break crop. I don't even like that term, I hate the term break crop. But it does emphasise that there are more important cash crops to the farmers in those systems. But really, you know, well-managed legumes, uh, grain legumes, can be the most profitable crop in your rotation. You can certainly get premiums above wheat because of the, especially for the demand for aquaculture, but increasingly uh, an emerging demand for direct human food consumption. So it's a bit of an odd thing, isn't it? Because if it can be a profitable crop and it's beneficial when appropriately done um, for the soil and for the subsequent crops, it does beg the question, what what are the barriers? Why is there so little um, legume production in Europe? There's many factors. I think on one hand, it's short-termism. Um, in that if you look at the benefit of legumes over the whole rotation, the benefits become clear. Whereas in any one year, it's probably driven more by market. And certainly prices of local grown legumes are undermined by really cheap imports coming in from some very unsustainable sources at times. And there's other th- issues, you know, things missing outside the supply, outside the farm gate. But just to stay within the farm gate for a moment, I think it's worth mentioning that extension services in the UK have been decimated. Um, having independent agronomy advice you know, is critical. And I believe you know, agencies you know, like ADAS used to number in their thousands, whereas now you're talking about a few hundred people with a very broad remit. So, so that's, I think that's a problem because farmers do grow things yeah. in fashions and sometimes I think skills can be lost in between those fashions going up and down. So having independent agencies to direct behaviour in, yeah, in within the farm system is good, but outside the farm system, there's things lacking. You know, there's a there's a few dehullers uh, in England. There's no dehullers in Scotland for peas or beans. There's nobody air fractionating pulses into their component parts because each one of those yeah, a pulse has a value, but if you start fractionating it, the value goes up enormously. So hulls are generally fed to cattle, but actually they've got a really terrific health value, and there's people now making pastas and breads with them because of their high antioxidant and high gut health values. You can separate the starch and the protein components from pulses. You can imagine the number of routes to market then increases. But we can quickly get to breeding as well because nobody's really bred peas or beans for different markets. They can be malted, but they've never been bred for malting. And and that was where I was going to go next, which was to say when I think of you know legume growing, I think of maybe the Midwest or Canada or um, Brazil, you know, I don't think about northern, rather damp climates like like we have, and so that would suggest that there are different breeding 
objectives if you were to be breeding for this climate. Is there breeding for this part of the world? You know, tell me a little bit about the, the breeding landscape for legumes. Yeah, it's not very big. There are agencies breeding legumes in the UK. The, the main one I'm aware of is um, in Wales. I believe that's on their contracted breeding for other larger companies. I'm, I'm not aware of any serious breeding going on with a view to the targeting of the UK market. There are much bigger markets, and the breeding that I'm aware of going on in England is largely academically focused, I would say. So it's genomics and genetics, and we're looking at ways to assist you know, molecular marker-assisted breeding. Is it more screening that goes on for varieties that are suitable for this kind of climate? So, yeah, no, I think screening is an adequate term. I think there's screening for crops in in the UK. There's not real any serious breeding programmes. And even, you know, even if you move across the UK, they're very different climes. I know that how they grow beans in Scotland. We look for a very different plant architecture compared to somebody who might be growing beans in England. To just to do with the amount of water they might get and things like that. You know, we, we might be prone to a wetter environment up here. So we, we, we look for a different architecture or spacing. Um, and that would vary as well between whether you're growing for the vining market, that is, you know, fresh peas and beans or dry peas and beans. Obviously, now we've got climate change. So your crops also have to be resilient. They have to start coping increasingly so with weather. People keep calling it global warming. It's kind of a little bit annoying to hear it couched in that way. It's true, on average, we're getting warmer. But the bigger impact of climate change is weather stochasticity. That is unpredictable weather. Being really hot and then really wet and then really dry and then really cold all mixed up. So you're, you're, you're losing consistency of weather pattern. And you need a particular kind of crop to deal with that. We certainly saw that in the UK this year, didn't we, with a phenomenally wet period followed by weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks of dry weather. It was really conspicuous. You're listening to Plant Breeding Stories, brought to you by PBS International, world leaders in pollination control. We're exploring the personal stories behind people who've dedicated their careers to plant breeding, helping us to more productive plants, greater food security and more sustainable agriculture. Now, back to the podcast. One of the things I'm, I'm curious to talk to you about is um, a rather unconventional piece of work that you've been doing. You mentioned the, the big attraction of legumes is the, their ability to fix nitrogen. Um, and yet, I understand you're doing a piece of work looking at how can you breed out um, nitrogen fixing capability. <laughs> so tell me a bit about that. <laughs> oh, no, you're just you're just causing trouble for me. Um, there's been long running questions in academia about what the cost is of nitrogen fixation because it's a symbiote system because you have these rhizobia to feed, and also it's actually a tripartite. It's a three-way symbiosis between a, a soil fungus called mycorrhiza. So the, between the mycorrhiza and the rhizobia and the plant, they allow this process of grabbing phosphorus and nitrogen to drive this biological nitrogen fixation. So um, there's been long-running issues. What is the cost of that? That's one aspect. You know, I would like to know what the cost is. And even if there is a cost, I've done some early experiments with pulses where I've applied lots of nitrogen to them, and they actually grow less well with you and you apply lots of nitrogen. At least fava beans do. Common beans less so. Actually, the legumes are, are very in that capacity. But even if I bred out nitrogen fixation from legumes, 
and a hard to apply fertilizer, they, stay may, they still may not do well because they've simply not evolved. Their physiology, their physiology is not evolved for that sort of system. You know, they just need a low nitrogen environment. We also have a, a process, uh, a particular method to measure biological nitrogen fixation. It, it relies on looking at what we call a reference plant. The more nitrogen exists, generally speaking, in a, in a form that's called 15N, there's different isotopes of nitrogen, whereas air is 14N. The more, the more nitrogen I acquire from air, my 15N signature becomes dilute. So I'll acquire some nitrogen from the soil. The more nitrogen I acquire from the soil, the higher my 15N signature. As I acquire nitrogen from air, I dilute that 15N signature. So we use what's called reference plants to find out what is the 15N signature of the soil that, that our legume is growing in. And um, to do that, we use a non-fixing plant. So we use a, a weed that isn't a legume or another crop plant that isn't a legume. And we'll find out what the value is of a plant that's on, you know, in that soil that's only obtaining its nitrogen from the soil. And then we look at the legume, and generally, of course, the legume has that 59 signature diluted. Now, the problem with that is the reference plants we use, if I'm looking at faba bean, the reference plants we use are not faba bean. They're a non-fixing plant, but they're physiologically very different from faba bean. So we don't have a non-fixing physiological equivalent. So I'm, I'm looking to as well have a plant that's, that's a physiological equivalent to a faba bean, but doesn't fix nitrogen. And it would mean that our estimates of biological nitrogen fixation Maybe they're fine using the weeds as a reference plant and the other non-fixing crop plants, but it could be that they are, they're, they're not as good and that our estimates of nitrogen fixation are not accurate. There's not enough people measuring biological nitrogen fixation, you know, as, as a whole. There's lots of people doing studies on, on enzymes and a whole lot of biochemistry and molecular biology around this, this area. But nobody, even the scientists, very few, are actually measuring how much nitrogen is fixed for me. I find that fascinating. It's really interesting from, from all the things that you've said so far that you, you're sort of constitutionally oriented towards quite collaborative work. You know, that, the example of the gin was very collaborative. I'm, I'm interested to dig into sort of your thinking on collaboration and particularly cross-disciplinary collaboration. Mm. Um, previously, we discussed the role of social sciences in agriculture. Um, do you want to just expand a little bit on on how you think social sciences can and should be brought into the work of plant breeders and others in, in agricultural mm. research? We have this habit, probably stems from the common agricultural policy and, and post-war food policies, that you can gain more sustainable systems by just increasing production. And I don't believe it's that simple at all. Certainly a lot of the barriers to uptake of pulse crops in Europe, of course, are influenced by global trade and things like that. But we've got to a point now where we lack the capacities to upscale, even if we wanted to. So there are technical limitations. You know, we talked about the processing ones. But also there are social limitations in, in terms of food literacy. Consumers have largely become passive uh, in this process of food systems. They, they, they trust their retailers to do what's right uh, and they trust businesses along the value chain to do what's right. And you can't, we, you know, we know we can't do it. We've seen what happened with plastics and nitrogen pollution and a lot of people just simply don't have access to, to sustainable food. So there are, to me, there's huge barriers in education, but, you know, even faced with the knowledge of what is good and bad, humans consistently make poor choices it's a curiosity of 
people's psychology and also some some places are cultures around the world are much better at forming self-help groups because i work quite often in the european context i know there are places around particularly eastern europe where there was a war not long ago you try to create a farmer network in some of these areas and you'll still find a reticence to to do it mm-hmm. because of the legacy of that uh, so I think um, you know, social science in its broadest terms, when you start looking at how people are and why they make the choices they make, you, you quickly uncover quite a lot of challenges. I've heard a friend from Natural England saying that it's much more easy, easy, he said, to set up farmer groups, network groups, self-help groups in England than it is in Scotland. I don't know why that is. Mm-hmm. In addition to you seeing a home for social science and agriculture, you also see ecology or ecological thinking in the way that the economy runs um you know we were talking previously about that do you could you just ex- explain a little bit about how your thoughts about systems and ecology hmm. influence your view of the economy as a whole certainly i'm biased by my my professional experience life experience but if you have a system any system it could be a marriage it could, yeah, it could be a field of beans. If, you, if you're continually taken from it, should you be surprised when the system collapses? So you need to be feeding back those essential elements and ensuring those essential functions that maintain your system. Now, if I was looking at a crop system, the soil would be key, for sure. The, the soil, the soil qualities, its physics, its functions, the resultant water quality and air qualities that result in all these things. Um, you know, in that sense, if you take that idea and translate it to an economic system, if you if you have the individuals on that system in that system not catered for in a way, if you consider people like soil, <laughs> that they're not able to sustain themselves next year, can you be surprised when that system collapses? So I guess in the same way that nitrogen has to move within a system, I hope that money would move within a system. Uh, and in a way that's equitable and fair and ensures that the the important, what we call in science circles, ecosystem services, but I hate the term ecosystem services, but really what we mean is those traits of the system, those particular functions, you know, are preserved. And surely in the same way that your soil well-being is paramount, if you want a socio-ecological system to work, you would want the well-being of your people to be paramount it makes to me it makes sense um so i'm not i'm not against um the market forces that are dominant at the moment but i do believe i don't believe in a free market i think markets are regulated and i think the markets have to be better regulated to ensure that what we crop at home doesn't just sustain good soils but sustains healthy people as well from where you are now Mm. what things are you seeing that you're attracting your energies and your interest? I'm really happy to be working in um, an agroecology group. Uh, the ecologists are holistic in their mindset and supportive. So, so I can see myself um, developing more of an interest in the forage legumes and grass legume-based systems. Also, how some of those forage legume based approaches could be embedded within the arable system 
the situation with legumes is um, really indicative of a bigger issue with crop systems is that they're not diverse. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, a, we have a weak dominated rotation, generally speaking, in England, barley dominated rotation in Scotland. And I can't speak for the dominance of wheat in England, but certainly in Scotland, barley is two thirds of the rotation. So this concept of crop rotations, your, your holistic crop rotation kind of gets thrown out the window uh, when two crops in three is barley. Um, but it drives a very important economy, don't get me wrong. In, in that sense, it, it, economically, it's really important. But um, but we need to diversify our crop systems. Well, well you know, to, to gain the, not just a diversity, it's not simply as just having a diversity of crops in the system. It, it's about also delivering a diversity of food. And from that diversity comes resilience. If the bottom was to drop out the barley market for whatever reason, what would we do? Can you just explain? You touched on this um, previously, mm. but it, you know, you you mentioned that barley makes up this two thirds of the rotation. Mm. Can you just describe um, where that barley goes, mm. and then also link that back into why legumes would help in that rotation and, and improve that? It was certainly concerned about soil qualities, um, and so of those two bar, of that barley proportion, half approximately is for food. And um, and the other half goes for uh, brewing and distilling, so it drives the Scottish whisky beer market, which you know Scotland has a great reputation for, and quite rightly so. There's other dominant markets in Scotland as well, <laughs> which is aquaculture. And if we were to grow beans for aquaculture in Scotland, my back of a postage stamp estimate was that we'd need beans on one twelfth of the rotation, so one crop in twelve. That isn't really Frightening. And that's just to serve Scottish aquaculture. So that should be quite achievable with with the right capacities and the value chain in place. And that would add benefits to the to the soil yeah. to diversifying the rotation. Yeah, lowering greenhouse gas footprints. Absolutely yeah. properly managed. Um, it would be a nice, sustainable, circular economy picture that we get with that. Yeah. If you look at Abiki as a small example. Abiki was, if you call that, that distillery that's developed the, the Nadar, which is a Gaelic name for nature, the, the climate positive Nadar gin and Nadar vodka. They had no crops and no, no, no pulses in their rotation before we started working together. And last year they had 22%. Wow. Peak over. Or, you know, so, and they're using that on farm. So they're maximizing the profit. That's not quite a free raw material, but it goes into their on-farm distillery. And the waste material goes to feed cattle. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they've got the soil benefits. They've got the offset feed benefits. They don't need to import or buy in feed for their animals. And also the connection they're making with the consumer. Mm. Uh, it's a great route to educate uh, or to share narratives on sustainability. And the, that local isn't just something that's nice and touchy-feely. You know, it, it delivers something very tangible and real to the local system. You know, beyond supporting a local business, you're supporting your local ecology. Mm-hmm. Last question from me <laughs> is, um, and I'm going to roll two questions into one. Um, do you have concerns about the future and where do you see the opportunity? Oh, as a scientist, you've always got concerns. Probably ask me this question on a different day, I'd give you a different answer. <laughs> uh, but certainly, you know, with the when, when we need transformation urgently, I can't help but look at the big players. You know, 
the big brewers, the big distillers, at least in the Scottish context, but even in the UK context, actually. The big brewers, the big distillers, the, the aquaculture people, food manufacturers, the big ones. If they decided to take peas and beans on in a, you know, with their value chains in the products and realise grain legumes as a vehicle to make their whole, you know, their the non-legume parts of their product uh, more sustainable, it, it could it could be a game changer. The, the the reality is, I know that these are big companies with big processing plants. They're locked into what they're doing, and it's not as easy as just saying we'll accept peas and beans tomorrow. You know, maybe it is. Maybe they, maybe they do have capacities that can do that. But if you if the big players decide to step up and say we want peas and beans to make those products, then the aggregators, the middle the middle people who who take the produce from the farms and ensure it's delivered in the right quantities and qualities and on time to the processors, it would be achieved. So if you want if you want quick transformation, and we do need quick transformation, I'd like to see the, the big players step up and balance their consumption of non-legumes. And all we're asking really for is that the, the balance that we see in the crop system needs to be seen throughout the value chain. That is a great challenge to um, put out there and, <laughs> and great food for thought. So <laughs> I, yeah, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Thank you very much for, for joining me and for sharing all your experience, Dr. Pietro Ionetta of the James Hutton Institute. Thank you. You've been listening to Plant Breeding Stories by PBS International, and I'm your host, Hannah Senior. Plant breeding is a pretty specialist podcast topic, which can make it difficult for people who share our interest in this kind of thing to find it. So if you enjoyed the podcast, recommend it to your friends and colleagues, and please help others in the plant science community find it by rating this episode and subscribing to the series. If you want to suggest people you'd like us to interview, contact me on Twitter at PBSint, or on Instagram at pbs underscore int. Until next time, stay well.